Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. From MaximumFun.org and NPR, it's Bullseye. Molly Shannon, my guest this week, is one of the great comic actors in the world. You know her credits. If you're a comedy fan, odds are she's responsible for, like, I don't know, three of your top ten favorite comedy moments. Saturday Night Live, Superstar, White Lotus, the other two. She also just wrote a book. It's called Hello, Molly, a memoir. In it, Molly Shannon shares her life story. She writes about her time on Saturday Night Live, but also about her childhood. Shannon's mother, younger sister, and cousin died in a car accident when Molly was four years old. Her father, who survived the crash and raised Molly, was driving under the influence. The book is harrowing and hilarious, heartbreaking and heartwarming, and a great read. I'm excited to have Molly on this week. Let's not delay any further. My interview with one of my comedy heroes, the great Molly Shannon. Molly Shannon, welcome to Bullseye. Happy to have you on the show. Thank you, Jesse. I'm so happy to be here. Was writing about your life something that you always knew you might do or something that you had to talk yourself into doing or be talked into? Um, I didn't, I wasn't talked into it. I always would write down stories about my dad and the way he talked and expressions. I was always writing about that. So... Yes. In the back of my mind, I always knew that I would be writing about it. But I think as far as writing a book, I kind of had to push through the embarrassment because I felt embarrassed. I was like, I don't, I was like, nobody's going to want to read this. Who cares? And I, yeah, I felt a little embarrassed. So I had to kind of push through those feelings. I mean, you also, you know, you start the book with uh, the story of being in a car accident that killed your mother mm, and, and just uh, yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah it's it was a, a tragedy beyond words mm-hmm. and i imagine that you know you couldn't write the story of your life without writing about that so you have to decide whether and how you want to tell that story in order to decide whether you're going to Write the book. Mm-hmm. Oh well, I always knew that I would talk about that because it, I, it, it, of course, affected my life. So to leave that out of the story feels like that would be strange because it really changed my life in a profound way. Your father was driving the car in the in the accident. He mm-hmm. he survived the accident and yes. was your primary caretaker when you were a kid. Yeah. Do you remember what it was like when, basically, just like when everyone was trying to figure out what your life would be like, like what the structure of your life would be like, like when you would like go to school or like who would take care of you when your dad was at work, like those kinds of things. Do you remember when, when everything was still upside down? Yes. Cause we lived with my aunt right after the accident, my aunt Bernie, there was a lot of like, Oh my God, who's going to take the girls? Cause my dad was severely injured. I mean, he was almost pronounced dead and, he was in, you know, ICU and, you know, his legs were up in chains and he was intubated. I mean, it was horrible, you know. So my dad comes from a big family, a lot of sisters. So they were all trying to decide where we would live when 
when we got out of the hospital and who was going to take us. And they didn't know how long it would take him to recuperate. So they were all wanting to take us. I think Uncle Hugh and my Aunt Bernie and Aunt Mary Rita, they were all offering to take us. And they all had children of their own. And there were always aunts and, you know, uncles and cousins at the hospital, constantly people visiting us and bringing us gifts. So we were so little. So we wound up at my Aunt Bernie's house. And it was, you know, a confusing time because we're— we're returning not to our own house, but going to this new house, and my dad's in the hospital. And then I, I, we were in the hospital too for a while before we got to go to my aunt Bernie's house. So it was like a new neighborhood, new kids. I had to start a new school. So you know, I do write in the book that I was like we were starting kindergarten, and I just remember being like, Ugh. I, I was depressed. You know, I was just like, Ugh. you know, we were trying to sing you know, the wheels on the bus. And I remember just being like, the wheels on the bus go round and round, feeling very different than all the kids. Like, I felt like I'd been through a war, kind of. So that was that was strange. But we tried to settle into my aunt's house. And then my Aunt Bernie was grieving the loss of her daughter. My Aunt Bernie, who took us in, her daughter, Fran, was killed in our car accident, too. So I didn't think about that until I was an adult, that here she's in heavy grief for losing her her only daughter. And um, she has to make us bean and bacon soup and try to be like a mom and get us registered in school. And then eventually my dad comes and moves into her dining room in a bed and she has to take care of him. I mean, it was crazy. At what point in your childhood, if any, if any point mm. in your childhood, did you feel like you had, um, I was going to say a normal life, but, you know, you had a very unusual life just by being the child of a single father. Yeah. What I really mean is just like, <clears throat> when did you feel like you knew what your life was? Like, when did things feel settled? Yeah, I think when we, we stayed at my aunt's for probably like a year while my dad recuperated. So I did kindergarten living at my aunt's house. And then we got to move back to our original house. So that felt really good being back. But of course, because I was only four when my mom died, I had a fantasy that like, oh, she must be back at the house. You know, I just kept making stuff up because I think when you're little, you know, you don't understand how kids' brains work and there's no way you can understand they're dead. So I kind of went into a fantasy waiting, thinking, well, she'll be behind that wall or there. or Maybe she'll pop up behind the door. And then when she wasn't at my aunt's house, I'm like, well, maybe she's back at our house, you know. And um, and then I did eight years at a grade school called St. Dominic's. And I had the same kids for all eight years. So that was very stabilizing. I have to say, I love that. And I'm glad I didn't switch schools and it was just that small group of like, whatever, 23 kids. And Allison was in my class who I read about in the book. And we were very close, all those kids. It was like a little family. I hated missing school. I loved my school so much. Um, did the people either in, in your, I don't know if you went to church, but in school, like did those nuns and priests see you and help you? We went back to church one day, St. Dominic's, the original neighborhood where we lived. And and most people, relatives, did not want to talk about it. They'd be like, oh, don't talk about that. You know, it'll make her cry. Don't bring that up. But the truth is, is I was in such pain and, you know, that I wanted somebody to understand it. So Father Murray, who was an, a priest with an Irish brogue sauce at St. Dominic's after Mass one day, and he knelt down and looked me in the eye and he was like, no, Molly. I know you lost your mother, you lost your sister. So sad, Molly, you know. 
going to be very hard. And and he acknowledged the loss. And I loved it. I was so appreciative. I was like, he took my hands. And I just remember feeling so grateful because it felt like he understood and I did want to be seen. And and I wanted to somebody to understand that. So I really appreciated that he was so direct in his expressing, you know, understanding for what I must be going through. It was great. I'll never forget it. What was that subject like inside your house? Inside our house. So my dad didn't really talk about it. I mean, then as we were older, you know, I would ask him about it and stuff. But um, it wasn't really talked about. Just, I mean, my dad always had, my dad had a big picture of her in her wedding gown with a rosary over her, over the frame picture on his bed bedside table. So I always looked at that with the mask card. And but um, I mean, he would uh, talk about her and stuff, but it wasn't like we talked about the accident that much growing up. Later, of course, we had questions and wanted to talk about it. But growing up, of course, you you know that that happened and everything. But it's not like we talked about it that much. No. I mean, a little bit. It wasn't like, I'm sure if, yeah, I'm sure if it was just, yeah, my friend Allison, actually, I spoke to her recently about it, and she remembers she started St. Dominic's in third grade, and I invited her over for a play date, and she told me that she remembered, like, oh, she knew that my mom had died, and she remembers playing down the basement, and there were school desks, like those old-fashioned school desks that we would play with. And she was like, oh, that must be. She knew that my mom had been a teacher. And so she knew that those must have been my mom's school desks. But she didn't want to say anything. But I was like, oh, that it's so interesting hearing her perspective as a child, you know. Especially because, you know, you were a child. Children aren't don't have a much much third third position perspective on their own lives yeah. in general. But yeah. certainly when you were so subsumed in this kind of river of of the circumstances of your life. Yeah, yeah. I think I was in like a little bit of a fantasy, like I have a mom, you know, and then I write about this in the book. There was a boy in fifth grade and he was like, he's passed me a note that said, ha ha, ha ha, you don't have a mom. And I opened it and I, bur- I it was the first time I was very happy, like in St. Saint- Dominic's, I had so many friends, but I broke down crying and and it really kind of punctured my fantasy because I was like, I felt misunderstood. I was like, I have a mom. I just, you know, I do have a mom. Like she's just in heaven. She doesn't pick me up at school like all your moms, but I have a mother. I felt like defensive. So I realized like, oh yeah, he is probably right. Like I don't have like a physical mom who's present who, you know, can brush my hair and, you know, make me breakfast, but I have a mom, you know, but it was, it was like a big moment they're realizing that I was more fragile than I thought, you know. More still to come with Molly Shannon. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Molly Shannon. She is a veteran of Saturday Night Live, an accomplished comic actor, Recently, she starred in the TV shows White Lotus, The Other Two, and the new show I Love That For You, alongside Vanessa Bayer. Shannon also just wrote a new book. It's called Hello, Molly, a memoir. Let's get back into our conversation. Your father was immensely cool and fun and charismatic. Mm -hmm. 
also a single parent and uh, an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. Um, You later learned he was a closeted gay man. Mm -hmm. Was he able to be there for you and your sister? Yes, he he really was. He was um he was like my biggest supporter. He was really fun and um he was very silly. Like he made everything fun. Like if we went to a candy store, you know, he'd be like, "Let's pretend like we're blind." We we were very close. It was like almost like brother sister relationship. Like he'd go, "Want to do that? Like pretend like I'm blind." So we would go to like, you know, Stouffer's Candy on Chagrin Boulevard. And he would be like, uh, pretend like he was blind and be like, is this chocolate? It was always like acting stuff. And he was very silly. My friends loved him. And, you know, of course, he could could also get stressed out and be in bad moods. But he was also equally fun and easygoing and very interested in my life. And, you know, uh, always like taking us to piano. I mean, very involved and had to clean the house and cook us dinner every night and You know, so I think sometimes when people think alcoholic, they just assume, oh, my God, drunk every day. It wasn't like that. He would have, like, large periods of sobriety with, you know, slipping again, but but really um, also was a very—I always felt deeply loved by my father. Yeah. There's also this thing which is, um, you know, I think when you're a kid— the one thing that you really want or one of the essential things that you want from a parent is to know what you're going to get. And when someone is an addict, Mm -hmm. you can't necessarily rely on knowing what you're going to get. Yeah, exactly. That that's true. So when he was in periods, yeah. And I, I write about that a lot in the book, like, There would be certain times where I was like, oh, no, like St. Patrick's Day when we did the show, which was a big drinking day. I really dreaded it. I was like, oh, no, I know he's going to go downtown and he's going to drink too much. And I would worry. Yeah, you worry. So you have to become like a little adult at too young of an age. It would stress me out. So I would make up, you know, oh, you can't pick me up in my classroom because they're not allowing the parents to come. You have to meet me on the street, you know, stuff like that. Or I could tell from stage, from our St. Patrick's Day show, how drunk he was by how he would wave like, oh, God. But I would pray and worry all day. Oh, I pray, pray, pray that he could come home and just take a nap and have a coffee so he kind of sobers up before the show. So, yes, there were those worries. I'm not saying that was every day. or It would be more like if it was like a party-type situation where if he might overdo it, like a wedding or, you know, I would go take a sip of his drink to see if I tasted something he, you know, splashed in it or, you know, it was worried. It was hard to just relax. But then, thank God, when he found AA, he did get sober for long periods of time, and that was like a great relief. But that wasn't until I was older. So that was... Probably like, yeah, 14, he started going to AA, 15. And I would go to Al-Anon meetings in the basement of these churches with like 50-year-old women. And yes, yeah, so I I loved them when he didn't drink. That was fantastic when he really worked his AA program. So I'm so glad that he found sobriety, you know. There's a story that you tell in the book that you've told elsewhere about being 12 years old and sneaking onto an airplane mm-hmm. to New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, I had like 
I had heard about this. Did you know Molly Shannon when she was 12 mm-hmm. years old? Mm-hmm. Snuck onto an airplane to New York City. It's like one of those things you hear and you're like, yeah, yeah way to go, 12-year-old <laughs> Molly Shannon. Yeah, 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 exactly. That fits in with my narrative about the great Molly Shannon. I love everything about it. Great, great thing to hear. Um, I don't think I was prepared in reading the story for the extent to which your dad was somewhere between complicit in and actively supportive of this horribly dangerous mm-hmm. and foolhardy decision. Mm-hmm. He really was like that. He's the one who dared us originally. He was like, I dare you to do it. That would be a great stunt. Now, you know? Molly, you know that most parents don't dare their children. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Typically, yeah. that, that's something that a, that like a, a, a kid in the neighborhood with one of those like jughead hats does. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. No, but he did. He had dared us, which is why he, when we pulled it off, he couldn't be that mad because we were like, it was, you know, his original idea. And yeah. But we know we really did do that. Was he was a big part of your childhood him daring you to do dangerous things? Um, was it a big part of our childhood? Well, he yeah. would do stuff like if we were, you know, at a mall and seeing a movie and the mall was closed and they're like the gate they pull those gates down the stores so you couldn't get in, but you could like they were like those fences. He'd be like, stick your hand in and see if you can, like if it was a wig store, see if you can pull out a wig, you know? And so we would do stuff like that. We cleaned out the the um, part of the house. There was like a section where leaves got under near the basement window. So he was like, I'll take you to the amusement park. But then he was like, see if you can sneak in because he didn't want to have to pay. So we would go around the back at Geauga Lake and hop over the barbed wire fence and then come in and we would meet him at the front. So he encouraged stuff like that. He did do that. Like, see if you can do it. See if you can do it. And so we did do that. <laughs> I know that sounds crazy, but we did do that. Yes. And then he was like, good, because he didn't want to have to pay for it. Or he would, you know, because he was a single parent with a disability. So he worried about money and stuff or, you know, that that type of thing. Not all the time, but stuff, stuff like that. Were you aware that your of how different your family situation was than the other kids at Catholic school? I have to say my friends loved coming to my house because it was fun. You know, it definitely was fun. And my dad was fun and my dad was very interested in my friends. And so I think they liked coming, Anne and Allison, and they liked coming to my house to play. It was like lots of games and we would make up dances. And so it was fun. And my dad was also very interested in them and wanting to hear their stories. They felt very understood by him, um, sometimes in a way that their own parents didn't understand. So a house that might have looked like, oh, well, that house is perfect and they're normal. Some of those people were going through their own things, even though the picture looked so pretty. You know what I mean? So a lot of my friends adored my father. He was very understanding and cool, and he had a kind of a different outlook about life. And he taught me a lot about the world. And um, it was unconventional, but he he was a great teacher, you know? Yeah. Did you have the expectation that it was okay for you to be an artist for a life? 
So as far as being an actress, I felt it was hard. I was in high school, and it was hard to admit that I really wanted to do that professionally. I, I knew that I did. I did plays at Heights Youth Theater when I was, you know, a preteen and teen, and I really felt the calling. I was Dorothy in the Wizard of Oz. I, 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 I started getting recognized in the neighborhood, like, oh, my God, that's the girl that plays Dorothy. And, you know, I loved it, and my dad loved it. And tons of kids would come to these Heights Youth Theater productions. They were very popular, and I would get starring parts in them, and I, I really— loved it. But then in high school, I was a little embarrassed to admit that I really want to be an actress. So I thought, well, I should, you know, I got to prove that I have the, I've got the goods. So during an assembly, I decided I would, they had like a talent day where on Fridays, people could get up and show their talent. And I decided I would get up in front of the whole school and sing a song. The microphone went out and the performance was a total bomb. I mean, it just, I, I ended up not even being able to sing. The microphone didn't work. And then they like called, okay, that's over. It didn't work. And I was like, oh God. But finally, by my senior year, I had admitted I wanted to be an actress. I applied to NYU drama school. I got in. And then at the very like last few weeks of school, they did some like assembly again. And I got up in front of the school and sang Zing with the Strings of My Heart, a Judy Garland song. And it was like everything was coming together. But um, but yes, it was very hard to admit that because I thought, well, do I have the goods? And it was hard to admit it out loud. Like, I want to be an actress, you know? Did you want to be Judy Garland or um, were you doing a bit? Um, I what, or what was the mix? <laughs> I didn't want to be Judy Garland, but my dad idolized women like Judy Garland and Rosalind Russell and those strong performers or Elizabeth Taylor. So we grew up listening to Judy Garland you know, after my dad would finish cleaning the house, he would play, you know, Swanee, like Judy Garland would blare through the house when the house was sparkling clean. So, yeah, so that's a performer I kind of grew up watching, Easter Parade. So, yes, I kind of wanted to be like those women. Yes, yes. But I also wanted to be an actress, kind of both, like an actress slash performer, live performer, that type of thing. You were in college when you created the character that became Mary Catherine Gallagher, right? So, like, that is, you know, remains your signature creation. Yeah. One of the, in my opinion, one of the best things. Just a, an incredible thing. And so distinctive and distinctively you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, like, you, I was like, oh, so she was just doing she was being molly shannon <laughs> yeah 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 when i did that in, in at yeah. nyu yeah you mean that i was that it was so close to myself is yeah. what you're saying no no not that it's so oh. close to yourself but so close to yourself as an artist like it was it was your voice like yes that thing is your thing you yes know what I mean? exactly. it's not it's definitely not anybody else's it is original to you exactly exactly and it, it i i didn't say that at cetera and live but really she is like an adult child of an alcoholic it's a nervous accident prone wanting to please um you know scared but wanting to like plow through the fear and succeed you know it's it's all of those things which is another reason why I wanted to write the book, because people will ask comedians, oh, you know, do you come from a dark place or this? I'm like, yeah, most comedians do. So it kind of gives like a, a like backstory to where those characters come from and the work. And so hopefully to make the work more meaningful, if you can place it in that history. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, let's hear let's hear Mary Catherine Gallagher, because it's one of the great things that we'll 
we'll play a clip from it on, oh, on Saturday Night Live. My guest, Molly Shannon's <laughs> uh, first gargantuan breakout monster character. Okay, students and members of the faculty, our next auditioner for St. Monica's talent show is Mary Catherine. Mary Catherine Gallagher! I slipped. <laughs> Mary Catherine Gallagher. Mary Catherine. Mary Catherine. Mary Catherine. Mary Catherine. Yes, right. I think I have it now. Uh, attention. Mary Catherine Gallagher. <laughs> That's me. Uh, okay. Right. Uh, I think I've got it now. Okay, everyone, okay. could we have some attention, please, for Mary Catherine Gallagher? What's wrong? Where are you? I feel come, shy. Come, come out here. Come out. Okay. I, do you want to, do you want to audition or, or, or what? Yeah. You do? Some, sometimes when I get nervous, yes. I stick my hands under my arms and then I smell my fingers like that. <laughs> but that's gross. Well, that's gross. Well, that's very interesting, that's Mary Catherine. Yes. Yes. Because it smells yeah. so bad. So there's, to me, two things about mm-hmm. Mary Catherine Gallagher. One is, it's funny to see somebody throw themselves into chairs. Mm-hmm. One is the really raw and intense emotional content mm-hmm. of the character. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This girl who so desperately needs to connect with the people around her, mm-hmm. so doesn't know how, mm-hmm. um, is such an open wound. Very sweet. Such an open wound. Mm-hmm. From the beginning, did you have both of those pieces or did you start throwing yourself into chairs and figure out why you were doing it? Uh, that's a great question. So when I first did it, there were no chairs involved. It was just the kind of emotional character, nervous. It was NYU. It was a completely different context. Um, <clears throat> the character got created because Madeline, I got cast in this comedy review show with Adam Sandler. And it was just a kind of show where we made fun of the teachers. It was called The Follies. And it became a giant hit on campus. And during rehearsals for that NYU show, Madeline Olnick was like, let's do an exercise where we just can, you know, make up characters. And I'm going to pretend to be the snotty director. And your job is to come in and try to impress me, try to get the job and make up a character and just don't overthink it. Walk through the door. And I, I, I did the exercise. I walked through the door. I went, hi, I'm Mary Catherine Gallagher. I just made it up on the spot. And then I improvised. And she was very not impressed. And I would have to keep trying, trying, trying to get her to pay attention to me. And they ended up loving the character. They built the whole show around the character. But the original version, she was like a like a murderer. It ended up being like a murder mystery. And people on campus loved it. And she wore, I think, all red at the time. So I developed the character live in front of an audience. But the essence, the emotionality, that kind of nervous, like, you know, pushing my hands against my legs and rubbing my the nervousness, the spirit of the character was there from the beginning. Because, yes, I'm pulling from myself. Then as I continue to develop it on stage and stage shows in L.A., we started adding stuff where I would begin the sketch in these stage shows that I did in LA where I would trip over a folding chair, drag it, then set it back like a sorry, like an accident. So I would do that every every show. Then that developed over the years. And I think when I got an uh or actually maybe in my stage show, I would start setting up little groups of metal chairs that I would fall into. I'm trying to, God, it's such a good question because I'm trying to remember how that developed. And then it became bigger, bigger, like when, it, when I first did it on SNL. So I think it just developed 
over time. And also, I was in a very reckless period of my life where I just didn't care about bruising myself or cutting myself or hurting myself. I just didn't care, and I, I didn't care. And it felt good to be physical and kind of get it out. But um, yeah, so to answer your question, the emotional aspect was always there. The chair thing was kind of developing over time, adding those physical beats as, it, as I continued to perform it in L.A., then on SNL. Were you self-consciously mining your own feelings, or did you realize later that you were mining your own feelings? I didn't really think about it. It was just very organic, and I would I would have certain beats that I had to hit, but I, I didn't think about it that way. I just, I just thought I would just play the performance, like where I want to go on. Like in my stage show, it was that I was trying to get a part in a David Lynch movie, and I would just impro- improvise in front of an audience, and that's how I really developed the character, you know? Me and this guy, Rob Muir, and he was... You know, it was a little sketch and it was a full improvisation. And we, we would invite big audience of 200 people and I would just make it up on the spot. I had certain beats I had to follow, but it was very loose and different things would happen in every performance. Did you ever actually hurt yourself? I mean, I would cut. No, not nothing major, but I would definitely cut myself and bleed and my muscles would hurt. And But thank God I never broke bones or broke my back or broke my neck. Thank God, you know. Like I, I took... Uh, a physical theater class in high school from a guy who was a clowning expert Whoa. and like he showed us ways to do bit, physical bits on stage that where you don't get hurt yeah that are you know things that commedia dell'arte performers passed to vaudeville performers Whoa. passed to circus clowns or you know like things things that you can do to fake take a punch or fake fall or whatever right yeah and um, and I, I, I remember thinking how incredible it was that there was this, like, institutional knowledge. Yeah. But then when I was in my early 20s or something and doing sketch comedy and realizing that people were doing these things without those skills. Yeah. It was, like, scary to me. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> I was like, oh, so you're just actually hurting yours like no one has taught you the secrets of i didn't i didn't remember or know all the secrets but i knew they existed yeah i was like so this isn't a function of you being hyper professional yeah this is a function of you truly just being willing to get hurt if that's what it takes yeah exactly that's dangerous i actually don't like that now i I, i'm much safer and i don't like that and it's scary because you can really get injured you know and now that i've done physical comedy for years i would never do the stuff that i did then now that i'm a mother and i have children it's it's crazy it's so dangerous and risky and i don't like that anymore we'll wrap up with molly shannon in just a minute after the break We'll talk about what it was like to leave Saturday Night Live. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Molly Shannon. Let's get back into our conversation. Did you uh, do that character in your audition for Saturday Night Live? No, I did not do Mary Catherine Gallagher because there was a a woman who was kind of like a unofficial talent scout out in LA and she was very hard to jump over she was more interested in boys than 
than in men than women. And uh, it was so hard to get through to her. And I eventually kind of jumped over her and just did my own show. And I had Marcy Klein then who was in charge of talent. And she came to see my show. But that woman heard heard that Marcy had seen my show. So she chimed in and said, well, you know, whatever you do, don't do that Catholic schoolgirl character because you'll never get hired. Lauren Michaels will hate it. And it was terrible that she said that, but I was like, okay. So I thought maybe she's right. So I did not do that for my audition, no. So what was it like to pitch it when you eventually did? It was really hard to pitch it because people didn't really get what it was. Like I remember pitching the character to a writer. I won't say who it was, but I had done the character Mary Catherine Gallagher for so many years in my stage show, so I knew it worked. It was like a hit. People loved it. And I had really developed it and would be like, okay, that works, that works, that works. Like So it was like a tight, like, five-minute sketch that would kill on stage. Like, literally, like, people would scream. It got a raucous response. So I knew it worked. But on paper at SNL, when I wrote up the beats, I remember showing it to a writer when I'd just gotten hired. And he looked at it and he was like, nah, the reason this can't work is because, you know, that's not a real joke and that's not da da And he kind of like explained it to me. And it just made me mad because I was like, I know it works. So I could have listened to him, but I didn't. So then I went to somebody else. I went to this guy, Steve Korn, because I was really like wanting to get it on air. And you really have to write for yourself to get on air. You're competing with 17 other people comedians for spots and you have to write yourself to get on air. But you maybe felt like you wanted some permission or help to do that from one of these other... A more, yeah, established, you know. Well, at the time I had just started. So then I found this other writer, Steve Corrin, and I said, I have this character. And he was like, and I go, here's a picture of the character. I do it in my stage show. And he was like, okay, good. He goes, just, let's just write up what you do in your stage show. So we wrote it up together. And that was the first, that's the one you just played. That's, that was a version. Only we made Gabriel Byrne the priest and he buoyed it with a few more jokes that I could land on and hang on to. And we made it, you know, she's auditioning for the talent show instead of a David Lynch movie, but it was the same stuff from my show. So we just, yeah, he's like, tell me exactly what you do in your stage show. And we wrote up our first sketch and we put it in the read-through table. And um, yeah, and like I said, I showed him a picture of the character and he was like, oh, this is great. We decided to set it in a Catholic school and uh, put it at the table the table read along with all the other sketches that are submitted. Sometimes there's 45 sketches submitted and they only pick, you know, whatever, 10 or something, or I forget the exact amount, but um, Lauren liked it right away. He was like, Ooh, like, I like this. He was, he was razor focused on it. And then he came to me and he goes, you know what, Molly, I want to save it for the Gabriel Byrne show who's hosting next week because he'll be a great Irish priest. So he was all over it. But then um, when it was that show, I think they still didn't realize what it was going to be physically. Because when you're reading it at the table for SNL, you're just reading stage directions. Like, oh, she comes out, you know, then she falls into some metal chairs. They're just reading it. And they're not really knowing what it is physically because you're just performing it sitting down at a table, you know. And so it made it onto the show list. It got on. But it was, when you go in for the dress rehearsal, it was at the very bottom of the order, which usually means it's stuff they don't believe in. And I'm like, oh, God, they're, they're not, I don't think they know what this is. Why is this at the bottom of the show order? That's not, that's a mistake. I, I think they don't understand what this is. 
And then during that Saturday before the live show, they have what's called uh, you rehearse for the dress rehearsal. And I and they ended up running out of time. And then it was like the dinner break, which means I didn't even get to really rehearse it. That means camera block it. That So I think basically the director just came out during the dinner break and was like, okay, show me what you're going to do. And we talked through it. But it wasn't like the formal good rehearsal because they ran out of time. And so I was like, oh my God, okay, well for the dress rehearsal, I'm gonna have to go crazy and really show them what this is because they don't get it because I'm about to go nuts and I'm gonna I'm gonna just have to show them and I'm gonna have to blow the roof off the house. And so I did. And then I went, and so it was the very bottom of the show. And then between dress and air, you go into Lauren Michael's office at like 11 o'clock and you see which of the dress show sketches will make it to air because many get cut. And you walk into his office and you look at the bulletin board and you see the, the new order of the live show and then what's cut. And Mary Catherine Gallagher, that sketch got moved from the bottom to the top. And I was like, yes, now we're talking. And that was the first sketch I ever got, got on air. And um, it was a, an enormous success. It was fantastic. And um, I just was, it was a great lesson in kind of writing for yourself and writing what you know and writing from your heart. And people really related to it. I got like a, a crazy response where people on the street would go, that character you did, that reminds me of my sister. And then the cameraman would say, oh my God, my cousin saw that. She said, that reminds me of her. And then people, you know, people come up to me in the street and did, 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 you know, so speaking of an adult child of an alcoholic, I was like, I was just writing what I knew from my childhood. So I was like, oh, this is so great. We're on to something. You know what I mean? I mean, I think there's people who th who throw themselves into furniture in order to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things in when I watched you on Saturday Night Live that I always admired was it felt like you were throwing yourself into furniture for the opposite reason, like to reveal yourself. Like yeah, yeah. You know, it's, it was your your characters are so open hearted. Oh, thank you, Jesse. And you know what's so interesting is Lauren loves that stuff. He loves comedy with drama or comedy with big heart. That's like, I, I think he loves that stuff. And it's my favorite kind of comedy because I don't like when people make fun of the characters. Like I, I'm like, I care about that character and, and I wanted to show, this makes me sad. I did want to show her heart to people and it meant so much to me. So I wanted people to be able to like see it and relate and laugh. You know, and I wanted to be able to write a story from a girl, from me, not reacting to the boys, not like, you know, like be a girl, tell your story, come from within. Maybe people will relate to it. And it was crazy, like how many people related to it? I was like, oh my God, it was like so exciting. I was like, wow, I can't believe so many people identify with this, this character, you know? Uh, <laughs> a lot of people... uh get on to Saturday Night Live because they're extraordinarily hard working, focused, and driven. It requires mm -hmm. certain specific skills. There's not a lot of other venues for those skills. Mm -hmm. Like you have to get, you have to be talented, work hard, be good, drive towards it. Mm -hmm. And those people often also have points in mind beyond Saturday Night Live because that's just the kind of person that can get that stuff together. Mm -hmm. I definitely feel how hardworking, focused, and driven you were mm -hmm. in doing this crazy thing you did. I also get the impression that like, by the time you were done being on Saturday Night Live, it wasn't because you were like 
too big to be on Saturday Night Live anymore. It was because you were like, just <laughs> ready to have a different, more chill life. I was, because I feel like I'd been working so hard, like achieving and driven to like make it and, and working so hard that I was like, oh, I just... I wanted to just enjoy my life and I really knew I wanted to have children and I just wanted to meet friends for coffee. And I remember when people used to say like, oh, SNL is a great stepping stone. I was like a stepping stone. Like, well, I don't consider a stepping stone at all. I was like, I can't even believe I got here. Like, this is the greatest thing ever in my life. Like I could freeze now and be so happy and fulfilled that I made it this far and never do anything beyond because I really knew what it was, this variety experience with Lauren Michaels. I knew it was a one-of-a-kind spectacular show, and I still feel that way. It's it's just the most, just the greatest. It's definitely hard. But I realized like when I went through that, you know, when I got really famous on SNL, I realized like I've had this anxious feeling like when people compliment me, like oh, there was like a gnawing feeling. And it was really like I really just wanted kind of my mom to be there to say she was proud. And I realized when she wasn't going to come back, like you could have people clapping and you could do backflips back and people coming up to you. And and it still wasn't going to bring her back. I was like I, I sunk into a depression for many months. But when I came out of it, I, w I felt really great. I was like, oh, I can just enjoy being creative. It doesn't fix anything. This isn't going to bring my mom back from the dead. Fame doesn't fix anything. And then I developed a healthy relationship with the arts and being creative because I, I didn't want to kill myself or be so hard on my body. I just wanted to be creative and have a happy, healthy life. And so... I started to treat SNL like a creative arts comedy camp, like, oh, this is so cool. Like, you know, even if you don't get something on, just enjoy it. It's been with like like all these great writers and performers. And I just tried to like treat it like a creative experience and not worry about being the best, but just just enjoy where you are and being an artist. Because I think that so I, I my whole perspective changed where I just was like, oh, I can relax a little bit. And yeah, so when I left the show, I wasn't leaving to do anything. I just wanted to spend time with my dad. I wanted to date. You know, I, I mean, I was dating my husband, but I wanted to enjoy just my relationship. I knew I wanted to have children. I was just leaving to go have more of a personal life. And it felt great. Well, Molly Shannon, we're out of time, but I'm I'm so grateful to have gotten the chance to talk to you. I, I, I admire you and your work so much, and the, the book is really beautiful. This has been a pleasure. Thanks, Molly. Molly Shannon, everyone. One of the greats. Her new book is called Hello, Molly, a memoir. It's out now. And it is it is a really great read. I've actually heard it's a really great audio book, too. But, uh, you know, these celebrity memoirs, they're not always real books. And this one is. Shannon's newest show, I Love That For You, premieres this week on Showtime. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. You know, I was driving my uh, son to school in Altadena, just northeast of Los Angeles. Eight o'clock in the morning, driving down one of the main drags in this little town. Guess what I saw? A coyote walking around like it owned the darn street. Southern California for you. 
Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio, Valerie Moffat, and Richard Roby. I'll tell you what, me and Richard went to see Sons of Kemet the other day at the Lodge Room here in Los Angeles. Uh, Sons of Kemet, past guests on Bullseye. Uh, Wow, that was a great show. Uh, If you get a chance to see Sons of Kemet, oh boy, that that was a heater. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, also known as DJW. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation, written and recorded by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can find us in any of those places. Follow us there. We'll share with you our interviews. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.